Hello, happy Christmas, and welcome back to Irish Football Chronicles. If you're a returning listener, you'll know that we're counting down the 100 most important games in Irish football history. Our next scheduled episode, after a fairly long wait, was due to be the Ireland-Hungary World Cup qualifier from 1989. But we're actually going to press pause on that one, and instead we're going to break our silence with a special seasonal episode. Um, We're escaping the Charlton era and the national team altogether. There's not much international football played in December, although the very last game of Charlton's reign, the Euro 96 playoff defeat to the Netherlands, took place on December 13th, 1995, which is actually the latest date in the year on which Ireland have played an international. So instead, we're hopping all the way back to December 28th, 1907. Now, what comes to mind when you think of a Christmas in the early 20th century? It's pretty much all the cosy tropes of the Victorian Christmas, isn't it? Even though Victoria herself died in 1901. It's carol singers under the street lamps, ruddy-faced gentlemen in frock coats lugging turkeys home through the silent streets, and pure white snow smothering all the world's troubles beneath it. Goodwill to all, peace on earth and mercy mild, except for viewers in Northern Ireland. Instead, Christmas 1907 in County Tyrone saw one of the most notorious incidences of football violence in the early history of the game here. Lively football match, said the newspapers. Regrettable incident in Tyrone. Free fights and stone throwing on the field. The match in question was as big as it comes. A second round, second replay of the Northwest Junior Cup tie between Newtown Stewart United and Sion Mills FC. Now this is going to be a mutual journey of discovery for us all because no amount of googling is going to throw up footage of this game or contemporary game shows or anything like that. To give you an indication of just how far back we're going, the edition of the newspaper that carried the report of this game also carried an obituary for a Mr John Kroll who was born the same month that Robert Emmett was executed. I can play you a snippet from one of the year's most popular gramophone records, which might help set the scene a bit. As you probably know, Belfast was really the birthplace of Irish football. And in Ireland, as in South America, Russia and pretty much everywhere else, football spread along with the factories and most importantly, the railways. Football followed the railways as they began to snake across the northwest. In 1907, the year our story takes place, the Fermanagh and Western League was founded. It's still around today, but back in 1907, long before partition, the league included teams from across the future border mostly from Donegal, although Sligo Athletic were the very first champions. But things are never what they used to be, and by 1907 many commentators were lamenting the decline of football in the northwest. They put it down to one thing and one thing only, the rough play and outright thuggery that had taken hold in northwestern football. Now if you're over about 35, you'll know how much the game has changed since the 1980s and 90s, Diego Maradona used to finish every game he played in battered, bloodied and bruised. The degree of physical contact and persistent fouling that you got away with in those days is just inconceivable in modern football. So try to imagine how violent Northwestern football must have been in the early 20th century. 
for it to have stood out in the way it obviously did. Just how bad did it get? I'll tell you in a minute, but first, let's take a step back into the world as it was in 1907. Now, 1907 had been a pretty turbulent year in Ireland. The Home Rule debate was rumbling on, although it would be another five years before the Ulster Volunteers were formed and things really got serious. In July, the Irish Crown Jewels went missing from Dublin Castle, never to be found. No one to this day knows what happened to them. On the football field, Ireland finished rock bottom of the British Home Championship, losing all three games, although none were too lopsided. But as the year drew to a close, one story gripped the whole United Kingdom, dominating the headlines of the Irish Times and the other national newspapers. It's a tale that will take us a long way from the football fields of Ulster, which we'll get back to, but I promise it's well worth the diversion. It's a story that begins on Baker Street, but would have befuddled Sherlock Holmes himself, the story of the lives and alleged death of Mr. Thomas Charles Druce. Now, T.C. Druce was born in 1794. A draper and upholsterer, he worked out of the Baker Street Bazaar in London. This was a huge establishment. Imagine Dundrum Shopping Centre if it had a ballroom, a carriage factory, and an ice rink complete with alpine scenery. But Thomas had no time for such fripperies. He stuck to his trade, raised his family, upholstered everything that needed upholstering, and eventually passed away a moderately wealthy man in 1864. Or did he? Because in 1898, Anna Maria Druce, Thomas's daughter-in-law, made the sensational claim that the humble Baker Street upholsterer was, in fact, William John Cavendish Scott Bentnick, the fifth Duke of Portland. She claimed that the Duke had lived a double life as T.C. Druce, faked his own death in 1864, and carried on living in a subterranean mansion until 1879. You know what's really intriguing? We know that the last bit was absolutely true. The fifth Duke of Portland was a notorious eccentric, even by the standards of the British aristocracy. His grandfather, the third Duke, had twice been Prime Minister, and as Home Secretary in 1798 had played a key role in the brutal suppression of the United Irishman Rebellion. The fifth Duke followed the family trade, serving in the army and as a member of Parliament for a rotten borough, but later in life he developed an absolute horror of appearing in public. His vast estate at Welbeck Abbey fell into disrepair, as the Duke insisted on living in just five of its rooms, each painted pink and stripped of all furniture except a commode. But as ever with the British aristocracy, the real intrigue was going on below the surface. Because beneath Welbeck Abbey, the Duke had built a vast, sprawling web of subterranean tunnels, 15 miles long in total. These tunnels housed a ballroom, a massive billiard room, an observatory and an art gallery, all painted pink. The Duke's meals were served to him via a system of underground rails and pulleys. When he did venture out, he swaddled himself in bulky clothes and hid behind an umbrella whenever anyone tried to talk to him. Now, if the idea of a British aristocrat having unlimited wealth and a secret underground lair doesn't ring alarm bells, you probably haven't been following the news lately. We don't know much about the Duke's private life, but his reclusiveness seems to have ended in the bedroom. The Duke, frankly, loved to put it about, and fathered at least one, probably three, and possibly many, many more illegitimate children. He died without a legitimate heir in December 1879, and his titles and estates passed to his cousin. 
And there, the story of the fifth Duke of Portland might well have ended, as a dusty portrait in a stately home, another British eccentric to add to the pile. In 1898, Anna Maria Druce, the daughter-in-law of the Baker Street upholsterer Thomas Druce, dropped her bombshell. The Duke and her father-in-law, she claimed, were one and the same person. You see, the Duke had also built a network of tunnels under his London residence, Harcourt House, and these tunnels connected directly with the Baker Street Bazaar. Why did the Duke never allow himself to be photographed? Why did he disguise himself in public? Why did he insist that his staff and servants ran away when they saw him coming? Why did he sack any of his workers who made eye contact or tried to speak to him? Why? Unless he had something to hide. And there was more. Anna Maria claimed to have evidence that the funeral of Thomas Charles Druce, who she said never existed, had been a sham. The Duke, tired of living a double life, had faked the death of his alter ego. There was no body in the coffin lowered into the tomb at Highgate Cemetery on December 28th, 1864. Instead, the casket was weighed down with lead rollers, and Thomas Charles Druce, the man who never was, disappeared into the earth while the Duke carried on living. It was a great story, but how could she ever prove it? Well, said Anna Maria, there was one surefire way. Open up the coffin. Now, the British state wasn't and isn't in the business of digging up aristocrats to prove a point. But Anna Maria refused to drop the matter, pursuing it through the courts until she was eventually banged up in an asylum. But neither Druce nor the Duke, if they were indeed separate persons, could rest in their graves just yet. George Hollenby Druce, Thomas's son, arrived from Australia in a whirlwind of publicity. He launched a sophisticated PR operation which included sensational pamphlets. He even set up a company, the Druce Portland Company, to finance his court battles, promising investors a share of the wealth which he was surely going to inherit. In fact, he even produced a witness, Robert Caldwell, an Irishman from Derry, who claimed to have arranged the mock funeral. Incredibly, George Druce's persistence paid off. On December 28, 1907, Thomas Druce's anniversary, and the same day as the match recovering took place, a court ordered Druce's body to be exhumed. As dawn broke on the cold, dark, wet morning of December 30th, 1907, police lined the deserted streets and avenues around Highgate Cemetery. News reporters waited eagerly at the gates, lashed by icy blasts of rain and sleet. In the distance, they could just make out the wooden shed that had been erected over the Druce family tomb. Under eerie, flickering electric light, Teams of technicians worked for hours, carefully digging through the layers of the tomb before reaching the supposed final resting place of Thomas Druce. This was the moment of truth. The tomb was cleared and two doctors climbed down into the grave along with two strong men carrying strong pliers. The men yanked and yanked and yanked at the lid, which had been undisturbed for 43 years until finally it came loose. As they lifted it clear, the lid of the wooden coffin beneath shattered in a cloud of splinters. When the dust settled, the two doctors peered gingerly into the coffin. What was inside? Absolutely nothing.
except for the well-preserved corpse of Thomas Charles Druce, exactly where it was supposed to be. As soon as word hit the stock exchange, shares in the Druce Portland Company plummeted. Uh, George Druce refused to accept defeat, but he was lucky to escape prosecution, and several witnesses were jailed for perjury. And so ended the strange case of Thomas Druce and the Duke of Portland. Except for one minor detail. The most compelling piece of evidence for the conspiracy was a pair of photographs, one of Druce, one of the Duke. The resemblance, the Druce family claimed, was uncanny. Today, all historians accept that Druce and Portland were separate people, but no one can agree on the photographs. Some say both are images of Thomas, some say both are images of the Duke. Some say one is Thomas and the other is the Duke. The two men looked so alike that, even all these years later, it's impossible to tell the difference between them, if, indeed, there was any. Anyway, let's flick back to the sports pages, shall we? On the same day as our featured game, Shelburne and Bohemians both lost heavily to Northern opposition in the Irish League. By the end of the season, however, Shells and Bowes were contesting the first ever All-Southern Irish Cup final, Bowes prevailing after a replay. The growing strength of Leinster football would contribute to a crisis that would tear the Irish game apart, but in late 1907, the Northwest was still preoccupied with rather more local difficulties. As I mentioned earlier, by 1907, Northwestern football had a hard-earned reputation for violence and rough play. It's possible that locals had been whipped into a frenzy by the Reverend T.T. Norton, who was touring the area with his lurid lectures on the land of the Vendetta, complete with lantern slides. The game we're covering was something of a local derby between Newtown Stewart United and Sion Mills, both clubs hailing from small towns a little outside Straban in County Tyrone. Of the two teams, Newtown Stewart United had the better pedigree, but also the greater reputation for violence, a win over Oma Celtic in 1906 was condemned by the Fermanagh Herald as more horseplay than football. Some of the greatest horseplay of all time. And the paper accused both sides of playing more for the sake of thrashing out personal difference than for the sake of sport. 1907 had been the most successful year in United's history. The club enjoyed strong support from its patron, the Duke of Abercorn, the last man to hold the dubious title of Groom of the Stool, to the Prince of Wales. In 1907, Newtown Stewart United made it all the way to the semi-finals of the Irish Junior Cup, the premier amateur competition in Ireland. The Duke lent his marquee for the occasion, and over 2,000 spectators turned up, but Newtown Stewart were beaten on the day by Belfast side Old Park Corinthians. Somewhat gracelessly, Newtown Stewart appealed the result on the grounds of ineligible players, Always worth a punt on the off chance in junior football, then and now, but the appeal was rejected. As for their opponents in this game, Sion Mills, well, information on them is a little harder to come by. The town was and is better known for cricket. It was the venue for Ireland's astonishing win over the West Indies in 1969. We do know that Sion Mills had been trounced 4-1 by Newtown Stewart the previous season, but quite why this match descended into anarchy remains something of a puzzle. This was a very fraught period in Ulster's history, but politics doesn't seem to have been a factor. 
While it's true that Newtown Stewart were backed by a duke, by the future Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland, and by a major Protestant landowner, there were Catholics on the club committee. Both towns were and are relatively mixed in terms of religion with Catholic majorities. Sion Mills in particular has always had a reputation as an integrated and tolerant place, which escaped the troubles almost unscathed. The game took place at Deer Park on a pitch lent to Newtown Stewart by their president, Nathaniel Topping. Topping was described as one of the premier stock breeders in Ireland. In his youth, though, he'd been a, a fine athlete and sportsman, excelling at cricket but also dabbling in football. He was still keeping goal for Newtown Stewart Freebooters, one of the clubs that merged to form United, as late as 1903 when he would have been 40. Today, Deer Park, where this game took place, looks much the same as it would have done in late 1907. It's a handsome, undulating expanse of fields on the edge of Newtown Stewart itself. This match was the third attempt to settle the tie. The previous two both played at Sion Mills, having ended in one-all draws. On Christmas Day, Newtown Stewart had played out a scoreless friendly against Abercorn Rovers, presumably the Duke's own team at Barons Court, his palatial estate just outside the town. So, on a freezing cold Saturday just after Christmas, Sion Mills lined up to face their more illustrious hosts in this knockout game. But it quickly became clear that there was something more than a chill in the air. A few salty cries from the sidelines let the visitors know they were in for an ordeal. The game itself was bad-tempered and violent, but something of a non-event in terms of football, until the 80th minute, when Sion Mills hit the front with a soft goal. With the home side reeling, the underdogs added a second three minutes later, and that's when things started to turn really ugly. The match reports are very much on a no-names-no-pack-drill basis. We do know that Newtown Stewart's star player at the time was their clever ball-playing forward Patrick Roach, a draper, just like Thomas Drews, and something of a veteran at 28 years old. Whether Roach was involved in the fateful challenge that turned a football match into a bloodbath, we'll never know. What we do know is that shortly after Sion Mills scored their second, a 50-50 challenge ended with two players hacking crudely at one another. A Sion Mills fan let loose with the fearful cry, Stick your boot in him! 2-0 down and going out of the cup, that was like a red rag to the men in red and white. The Newtown Stewart player forgot about the ball, strode over to the gobby fan and said, Come you and do it! Before the fan had a chance to take up the invitation, another Newtown Stewart player raced to the touchline and whacked him full in the face, drawing blood and knocking him to the ground. To quote the Ulster Herald, the scene after this could scarcely be described as anything but a pandemonium. Getting full value for their sixpence admission, spectators poured onto the field, mixing with players and officials in an unholy melee of utter, unadulterated carnage. Fists, feet, sticks and stones flew through the air. Blood spurted from shattered noses and deep cuts, flowing freely into the mud of the Deer Park pitch. A young fan wrenched a post from the perimeter fence and began wielding it like a club, while another snatched up an arsenal of paving stones with deadly intent. The fighting was fierce, free and general, scandalising the man from the Ulster Herald. Few could imagine, he said, 
that such a thing could happen in the 20th century and over a game of football. He was in for a long century. Incredibly, the referee, who was nothing if not a trier, attempted to clear the field and finish the game not once but several times. He eventually realised it wasn't a runner and did one himself. By now reduced to a bedraggled and bloodied rabble, the Scion Mills players attempted to escape the battlefield and make it back to town under a hail of stones which sculled players, spectators and onlookers indiscriminately. One upstanding Scion Mills player escaped the fray and made it onto the street. A local stopped him and asked him where he was going. To the police barracks, he said, asking where he could find it. The local answered with a swift and decisive thump which knocked the player to the pavement. By now, the Scion Mills delegation had managed to stagger back into town. They headed, bleeding and bewildered, for their parked cars, but on Mill Street they were again pelted with a deadly bombardment of rocks and stones. By the time the players reached their cars, most of the vehicles had had their lamps and windows shattered by the missiles, which were still raining down. The correspondent notes that players were trying to shield themselves with rugs from the floors of their automobiles, but to no avail. Eventually, the exhausted, battered Sionites escaped their ordeal. At 1907 speeds, it would have taken them a bit over 25 minutes to travel the six and a half miles back to Sion Mills, and they must have been looking over their shoulders for the livid mob all the way up the Straban Road. Newtown Stuart had seen nothing like it since King James had Stuart Castle burnt down in 1689, and what you've just heard was barely the half of it, according to our correspondent in the Ulster Herald. I could say much more on the subject, he wrote, but such scenes are better cloaked. What happened next? Well, after the shameful events of December 1907, neither club survived for very long. Newtown Stewart United, who were never really happy travellers, pulled out of a cup game in Enniskillen in February 1908, and then just disappeared from the record. It seems likely that most of their players switched allegiance to the local Gaelic football team that was founded in 1907. Let's face it, from what we know of them, Gaelic football sounds more like their style. Their president, Nathaniel Topping, remained a prominent figure in Irish farming until 1937, when he died after falling from his daughter's house during a fire. Newtown Stewart United returned to senior football in the early 1930s, pottering around the lower reaches of their Fermanagh and Western League until 1985 when the club collapsed again. Nowadays, Newtown Stewart is represented by Ard Straw FC of the Northern Ireland Intermediate League, the fourth tier of Northern Irish football. As for Sion Mills, well, they were still playing in the IFA Junior Cup as late as 1912. The club was revived in the 1930s and seems to have still been active well into the new millennium. The latest iteration of the club, Sion Swifts, hit the headlines in 2016 when they were turfed out of their ground by their landlord, a woman who'd won £27 million on the lottery. Happily, Sion Swifts women's team is still going strong and is joint top of the Northern Ireland Women's Premiership with Linfield at the time of recording. The seismic political events of the following years were almost fatally damaging to Northwestern football. After the Home Rule Crisis, the First World War and the Irish War of Independence, cross-border football became politically and logistically impossible on any serious scale. That said, the Fermanagh and Western League is still around, still thriving, and its website is well worth a look. Check out fermanaandwestern.com.
Okay, so before we finish, I'm going to leave you with a Christmas ghost story from the seasonal 1907-1908 edition of the Ulster Herald. The island of Inishini is located just off the northern coast of Donegal. Today it's uninhabited, but back in the mid-19th century, when our story takes place, locals occasionally camped out there for a few weeks to graze their horses and cattle. One stormy night around Christmas, a small boat struggled and squirmed its way into the harbour. It was crewed by the captain of a sailing ship and two of his comrades, seeking provisions before they returned back out to sea. The locals warned them not to return to their ship that night, but the captain had his schedule and bravely faced into the howling wind and churning seas. Sure enough, the next morning, the captain's body washed up on the beach. The locals retrieved it and managed to get in touch with the authorities who sent the dead man's body back to his home in Derry. It was a sombre Christmas on the island. The inhabitants, solitary by nature, banded together for comfort and company after their traumatic experience. They swapped stories and songs of their past adventures and lives on the mainland around a roaring fire. Suddenly, footsteps. Now, there were two things wrong with that. Firstly, they knew they were the only people on the island. Secondly, their hut was surrounded by soft sand. So, footsteps shouldn't have made any noise, but footsteps there were. And they were getting closer. And closer. And closer until they stopped. The door creaked open. And standing there, large as life, or some form of life, was a familiar, broad-shouldered figure. One of the women cried out, A yea, a foric, shimon kapchin! As she recovered from her shock, the woman plucked up the courage to address the apparition. Tarish Jock, she said. But the figure, whether or not it understood its native language, receded into the darkness and was never seen again. And to close in the words of TM, who related this account to the Ulster Herald, such is a true account of an accident and its attendant ghost story by which three men lost their lives and of how the spirit of one of them appeared in the flesh as far as the living eyes of four people could discern, two of whom are yet alive and can vouch for the accuracy of this narrative. And with that, happy Christmas, and we'll see you again soon. Take care.